Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKinty. This interview was recorded on August 10th, 2022. My guest on the show today is Dr. Andrew Kaufman, well known to many of you as one of the foremost proponents of the controversial terrain theory of disease. In contrast to the prevalent germ theory, which posits that illness is caused by invading microorganisms parasitically utilizing a host to multiply and produce infection, the terrain theory proposes the root cause of disease to be a fundamentally imbalanced internal environment. In the wake of the COVID pandemic response predicated upon the prevalent germ theory, terrain theory advocates such as Dr. Kaufman found themselves fighting an uphill battle against the powerful forces imposing the germ theory approach. Many have been accused of spreading disinformation and sometimes outright censored for entertaining the possibility of this alternative perspective. Nonetheless, Dr. Kaufman persevered, producing two documentaries over the past year elucidating the viability of terrain theory while continuing to question the scientific foundations upon which the dominant germ theory model is built. In Terrain, the film, Kaufman painstakingly deconstructs the prevailing COVID narrative, questions past science that has claimed virus isolation and proof of disease causality, and details the viability of the terrain model of disease causation. In Hippocratic Hypocrisy, he continues the crusade against Big Pharma by exposing a history of corporate malfeasance that prioritizes profit over health. Combined, these two documentaries provide the historical context within which the current allopathic system was allowed to thrive, while also constructing a detailed argument supportive of the notion that detoxification is the principal characteristic of healthy living. Overall, Kaufman's concept of a movement back to what he calls medicamentum authentica, or authentic medicine, envisions a shift away from a healthcare system based on the military metaphor of germ invasion to a system of natural healing based on the cultivation of a balanced terrain. He is currently offering workshops entitled The Way of Water, which extrapolates on the common sense notion that energized, clean drinking water must be a priority for all those seeking health and longevity. If Kaufman is right, and chronic dehydration is the root cause of many of the illnesses plaguing modern society, literally billions of healthcare dollars could be saved each year simply by promoting adequate hydration from a high-quality water source. Unfortunately, such a simple notion would not provide the large profit margins modern healthcare institutions have become accustomed to. Discover these documentaries, the workshop series, and much more by visiting www.andrewkaufmanmd.com. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast on your favorite social media platform. We rely on listeners like you for the distribution of this alternative information. As always, find hours of free content from The Shift and subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.theshiftnow.com or find my written work at thepopulouspapers.substack.com. You can now become part of the conversation by friending Doug McKenty on Facebook or by following at McKenty on Twitter. Without further ado, I'd like to thank Dr. Andrew Kaufman for agreeing to this conversation, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this, the 125th episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenzie. I am joined today by Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Uh, As many of you probably know, he is well known for his advocacy of the terrain theory of medicine, and I am looking really, uh, really looking forward to diving in deep. Uh, into this concept that's been quite controversial, especially over the uh, entirety of the COVID epidemic. So appreciate uh, Dr. Kaufman's um, willingness to come on to the show and looking forward to this conversation. 
Uh, good morning, Dr. Kaufman. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you, and I appreciate the invitation. For sure. Do you want to just, I want to start by getting a little bit of your history, your personal history, and how you developed uh, into becoming one of the biggest advocates of, of this concept of, of terrain theory. We can get into it, but did you start, you know, did you start this way or as a student, uh, were you getting funneled into uh, the typical concepts of germ theory going along with the program? Uh, and then maybe what happened to change your mind? Well, you know, I think really since I was pretty young, I have been kind of a big picture or maybe a systems thinker that I always want to understand things in their context. And so I came to it from that point of view. But when I studied medicine, uh, you know, went to medical school and did my residency, you know, there's so much, one of the things that is really a barrier for physicians is the amount of information that they want you to really memorize. and in fact, studying science at MIT and then studying the same science in medical school, you, you see a sharp contrast because MIT is really, you know, geared towards engineering. And even in the basic sciences, it's geared towards industrial applications, right? So their biology department is, uh, feeds technology to biotech, for example, in a pharmaceutical industry. And their education is all problem solving. So you were allowed to have your textbook right right in front of you during exams and it didn't help <laughs> you know because they're asking you to solve problems design experiments things like that that just require creative thinking that you have to know certain principles and then apply it to that situation in medical school it was totally different it was like memorize the names of all of the enzymes and then regurgitate it back but never did you have to demonstrate any understanding of how things work or of the principles. And there wasn't really time to spend on that because there was the volume of information was so vast. And so there was no time to question things and say, oh, what's the, what's the experimental basis for that? You know, is, is that really valid? You know, how did it develop? Where does it come from? Uh, even basic things like, you know, the building blocks of uh, biomolecules, you know, proteins, DNA, and carbohydrates, like we never even knew how did they find that out in the first place. Uh, you know, basic things like that. And, and uh, you know, I'm not saying we should talk about that today, but all of these things uh, are really on some very shaky grounds, many of them. And so I didn't really consider germ theory. Earlier in my career, I did research in public health. I actually worked for a CDC-sponsored position in the New York City Health Department doing AIDS case surveillance. So I was reporting AIDS cases, you know, what's in the official statistics. And at that time, you know, I was just a student. Like, I studied all the papers on HIV. I studied about all of the opportunistic infections, right? Things with exotic names like uh, histoplasmosis and blastomycosis. <laughs> and, you know, was totally bought into that because I never thought to question it. I never thought to examine the underlying foundational evidence. I just accepted it. And, you know, so when I went on a trip to Costa Rica, I actually gave myself a tetanus shot, <laughs> right? Uh, because right. I had no reason to think that that would not be a good thing. 
But the first time I did ultimately question it, because my experience was, first, I worked in cancer medicine as a PA, and what I saw is that none of the patients got better with chemotherapy. In fact, there was one rare type of leukemia that patients always got better, but the treatment in that case was a form of vitamin A, <laughs> not even chemo. So I'm like, you know, it took me many years to realize, oh my gosh, the only people that I saw got better from leukemia just took a vitamin and all the people that got the regular therapy died. So I had that experience and then I went to medical school and then I practiced in psychiatry, uh, which I know is a far cry from cancer medicine, but it was really the bereavement counseling part of working with cancer patients that led me to psychiatry because that was the most rewarding in terms of you know providing um, a service to humanity part of that work. It wasn't writing the chemotherapy orders and doing spinal taps and bone marrow biopsies, you know. Uh, that stuff was technically challenging, you know, at first, but, you know, you could see you're basically torturing people, um, you know, even though you're, it's in the guise of being helpful. So when I went into psychiatry, uh, of course, I was taught to use psychiatric drugs. That's the mainstay of mental health treatment in the present, although I made sure to go to a training program which had a strong emphasis on psychotherapy. And I studied psychotherapy as much as I could, both from psychologists and psychiatrists, both psychoanalytic type of methods and cognitive behavioral therapy. So pretty much everything that's out there that's said to be of value, I tried to learn. But ultimately, psychiatry really is just about prescribing medicines. And in fact, the jobs that I had or was offered, really, they needed a prescriber. They, they, everything else I brought to the table was a bonus, <laughs> right? But it's not really what they are paying for. Right. And what I observed is the same thing that I observed with chemotherapy, that nobody got better from taking psychiatric drugs. And in fact, many of them got worse or they got physical diseases that were caused by the drugs. Or with uh, sorry, antidepressants, I saw many patients actually develop suicidal thoughts from the drugs, that once I stopped the drugs, the thoughts went away. And like, uh, you know, at first I couldn't even believe that was possible. And when they first told us about that at Duke, they said, you know, what we should do is just uh, call any patients that we start on antidepressants in a few days to see if they're suicidal. <laughs> but right. don't really worry about it. It's just for liability. It's not a real thing. You know, it's really just because depressed patients have suicidal thoughts. But I saw this over and over again in my experience that they didn't have suicidal thoughts until they were on antidepressants. And then when they came off it, their thoughts went away. And this is exactly what's reported in the literature. So, you know, once I saw all this harm, I started to look outside the box. And first I found out just about natural healing in general, that people actually got better from all these diseases in the mainstream they tell us are incurable. And, and then I had the experience to try a healing diet, right? Just a, a nutritional protocol for a 30 day period with uh, a former colleague that was suffering from anxiety. And, you know, not only did her anxiety completely go into remission, right? Which I'd never seen in psychiatry happen. But I also noticed that all these little um, quirks about my body got better. 
<laughs> so, right. so that like led me on a path to study that as much as possible. And it wasn't until right before the pandemic that I started looking at germ theory. And, you know, when I looked at that just through a fresh lens and say, okay, let me see what's the evidence for this. It was pretty astonishing that there just is a lack of any evidence. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, the timing couldn't have been better, actually, because as the, of course, the coronavirus thing comes on, then you're starting to explore the entire concept of germ theory. Uh, I, it's, I think it boils down to, and let me know if I'm correct about this, but it's, it's ultimately the isolation of these viruses. There are such tiny particles. And when you go back into the history, um, you discover that there really hasn't ever been uh, an accurate way to isolate these things. Um, so why don't you just, um, I, I, again, just to give my audience the big picture, kind of describe that process. Is that that what you were really looking for in order to prove the germ theory to get yeah. down to exactly how they've been isolated? And then and then what did you find when you were looking? Right. At well, well, that's not actually where I started um, because you know, what I was really looking into at first was disease causation. And if you look at what the scientific method really is, okay, and I know that this is a term that's very confusing for most people or they have no idea, but we actually were all taught this back in grade school when we were taught the scientific method of, you know, hypothesis, uh, methods, results, conclusions, um, you know, and basically the whole idea is to prove that some phenomenon in nature is caused by some independent variable. And scientific experiments can be powered to determine if this causation relationship exists, right? So here we have a phenomenon in nature that people get sick, right? They get, you know, and you could just pick a particular illness if you want, or you could just say illness in general. But the more specific you are, then, it, then you can test it scientifically. If you're general, you can't test it in an experiment. But so let's say, you know, there's some illness, right, like um, uh, strep throat, right? So laryngitis or pharyngitis. Let's call it pharyngitis. That's the technical name for a swollen throat, you know, an acute inflammation. And so you'd say, okay, let me conduct a test to see what might cause that. But if you, you know, learn anything about the scientific method or about statistics or about logic, you'll come across this fundamental mistake that many people make, which is correlation does not equal causation, right? right. And uh, one example I always bring up is in the 70s, there was a heat wave in New York City. And so there, a newspaper article came out and said, you know, ice cream causes violence. And what they had seen is, you know, the ice cream sales were way up that summer and violent crimes were way up that summer. But there was no causality there. They were both caused by the heat, right? And so we could see that clearly, but there was confusion because both of these things happened at the same time. They correlated with each other. And when the microscope was invented and microorganisms were discovered, they looked at diseased tissue from animals and humans under the microscope and they saw microorganisms. So there was a correlation. But what they did is they assumed causation. And they, they outlined how you would do the experiments to prove causation, which is called Koch's postulates, or it's known as Koch's postulates. Mm -hmm. He didn't come up with the idea originally. 
but then they never actually did an experiment that carried out <laughs> that right. showed that that was a that there was a causal relationship they they did some experiments where they fudged things and they said it showed that but they never showed that and i'm talking about for bacteria which you can observe, like you can grow bacteria in a pure culture in a laboratory conditions, and you can look at it under a microscope and see just one form of bacteria. So that wasn't an issue for bacteria or fungi, but I saw that they never actually proved this causation. And then, you know, you have other scientists in this area who found different things that could explain things differently, like Antoine Béchamp, who found that the microorganisms don't come from the outside necessarily, like they can come from the air and the outside, but they also come from inside the organism. And this, you know, was, so in other words, nothing has to come in from the outside for you to have an infection where there's lots of bacterial growth because right. they come from inside, they live inside you. In fact, in our body right now, we know that there's about 10 times more microorganism cells, mostly bacteria, compared to actual human cells. And that we can't live if our body's sterile, that they're actually part of our organism and they provide vital functions, right? They synthesize certain molecules we need. They, they've found to communicate from the gut to the brain, right? So giving information about what's in the environment that's sampled in our gut and delivering that to the management center in the brain. So you know, now we have this understanding, and this is all, by the way, what terrain theory is. You know, we all know about the microbiome. That's terrain theory, uh, which is not really a scientific theory. It's more just an umbrella term that the quality of the ecosystem of nature, of the environment, of the terrain is what determines health. And then, then you can talk about specific diseases and causation, and the causation would be related to uh, essentially something disturbing the terrain. So not enough of the right raw materials like nutrients or some poisoning of the terrain or a lack of sunlight, right? Uh, all these kinds of things, depending on if you're looking at a, a plant's health or a human's health or an animal. And of course, so you can come up with lots of theories of disease, you know, a theory that polio is caused by um, insecticides like lead arsenate and DDT. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of data to support that. Um, but there's not a definitive scientific experiment that using the scientific method. Um, but there could be, <laughs> that could be easily done well, um, and, and that, show that causation. That's one of the things that fascinates me when I started to uh, research these things myself is that a lot of this science just hasn't been done. It's like people talk about trusting the science or believing in the science, and then they want to say that terrain theory is, must be just a bunch of bunk because they're assuming that the science has proven this uh, germ theory of disease, uh, when in fact, when you go back into it, you find that actually the foundations uh, of this concept are pretty shaky. And then they're not doing uh, the experiments that should be done that could correlate the uh, the toxicity factor with the disease. So uh, just right. in they terms have this of for, they have it for some diseases, like uh, mm -hmm. for example, there's um, uh, a type of lung cancer, and now of course I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's related to asbestos exposure specifically, right? And right. So they, they have some narrow areas like that where, you know, okay, well, why can't we, we could do the similar experiments and find, you know, particular toxins that cause lots of other 
diseases if we did actually did the experiments but yeah. so many of these things are just accepted as either it's just unknown and maybe we'll learn it in the future but in the meantime let's just develop more drugs for it or oh we already know it's caused by this or that imaginary germ or real germ that really doesn't cause it you know i mean strep throat is just a great example to look at because strep normally lives on, in your throat like on any given day you're walking down the street, we could culture your throat and find strep. So, and then when people get pharyngitis, we don't always find it. Like how many times have you brought your kid for one of those strep tests and they gave antibiotic and then the, the test came up negative, but the kid got better and you said, oh, well, it must've been a false test result. Yeah, <laughs> right? right, not realizing every test result is false because that bacteria is present, you know, in a normal situation, we just don't test people when they don't have a sore throat. And so finding it when they do have a sore throat is meaningless. Um, but we just make these assumptions because we think someone did the research experiment where they took strep and they squirted it on someone's throat and they caused pharyngitis. It's just that that, that never happened. <laughs> You know, or TB, where you have, and I knew this when I was doing the AIDS surveillance because TB was one of the AIDS-defining illnesses. Mm -hmm. So when I went to do record reviews, I was looking all the time at, at TB diagnosis. And the, you know, supposedly the definitive diagnosis, of course, is culturing the specific mycobacterium from the lungs. And they would do this. And in fact, they wouldn't just do it once. They would do it three times because they know that they would be hard to get back positive. And so you'd see all these people with like six, nine, 12 different sputum cultures and they'd all be negative. <laughs> but then this, the diagnosis is still TB. Well, if TB yeah. is the cause, it should be the most predominant thing you find, not unable to find it, right? And I never thought twice about that. I thought just what they said, oh, it's just, it's a hard bug to culture you know, and uh, let that be an excuse. And that's kind of what some people say about viruses. Um, they, you know, they admit that they've never found it directly from a sick individual. And that's really my main contention is they've only done this indirect experiments, like basically looking at ice cream sales and show that ice cream sales are up, but they, they forgot to look at the heat. <laughs> Instead, right. They're blaming the violence, you know, it's like it's, it's all backwards. So they say that they just can't find enough virus, um, you know, I mean, one virologist, Dr. Lee, says this, you, you know, you just can't find enough virus in sick people to actually show. So you have to, you know, invent it from a cell culture, uh, essentially, you know, instead. So there's no, there's no reason to look at the causation issue really with viruses because they've never actually shown a virus that causes a disease to exist as as a an entity so if there's no entity there's nothing to test causality with so you know that you know there's no such thing as viral diseases if there's not even a virus right and that kind of leads right into my next question because um, you you mentioned the the biome, the bacterial cultures that we know now exist in uh, the human body, and the numbers are are in the trillions, and that they actually serve this vital function. Um, it, was, it just seems like germ theory is is a 150 year old plus 
theory. And initially it was, you know, one bacteria causes one disease, right? And then, so obviously the discovery of the biome really throws uh, a monkey wrench into the whole theory. And I think it should make people kind of question like, hmm, so clearly, you know, a bacteria inside your body doesn't automatically cause a disease. And that took uh, I mean, I feel like maybe you can correct me on this history, but the the Byram theory started to develop maybe in the 1970s, and it still took decades before mainstream uh, medical practitioners w- would recognize it. It was called quack science until maybe in the last decade or so when finally uh, doctors and physicians had to realize that actually, yeah, the, the evidence is overwhelming. There is this biome. And it does serve a function and it really, there needs to be, there should have been a complete revisitation of the entire germ theory just with that. Um, And then if you- Well, they want to limit it to just, you know, selling some supplements um, Uh basically. And, you know, even, you know, they even accept fecal transplants as a way to treat certain illnesses that are actually caused by medical practices like, um, you know, pseudomembranous colitis. And or I forget the uh, other name for that that people might be familiar, but it's a terrible diarrheal illness that happens from people who get a lot of antibiotics or have a lot of tubes sticking out of their body. And you can cure it with a fecal transplant. And even in mainstream papers, this is written as as true, but try going to a hospital or a medical clinic and asking for a fecal transplant. Right. <laughs> They're not going to do it. They're going to give you an- more antibiotics. Right. So this is, um, you know, it's difficult to integrate these ideas. And the antibiotics actually, I mean, they target the the healthy biome system, too. So you're talking about creating an imbalance in the symbiotic system that science is now overwhelmingly accepted, exists and has a function inside the body. So let's explain the reason the reason the symptoms go away when you take antibiotics often, not always, but often, at least at the beginning is because you're just killing everything mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. no activity left, no healing activity. You know, you're, when you're sick, your body's actually trying to heal. It's trying to get rid of damaged tissue, um, purify your body and so that it can rebuild it. And you're basically, the bacteria are integral to that process and you're just totally disrupting it by killing everything, you know, anti against biotic life like living right against living so you're basically you know and that you're also killing your own cells i mean antibiotics are toxic to human cells also just not as potent as bacteria because they're designed specifically you know for bacteria so you know this is what people um are told is the right thing to do but it really doesn't make sense and they know that they get lots of problems after this, that they have diarrhea from antibiotics because they don't have the bacteria in their gut doing their job. Um, they get, you know, uh, thrush and, and uh, vaginal yeast infections um, and other sequelae because when the bacteria can't do their job, then, you know, the next set of organisms come in and sometimes that's the yeast. And the, the same thing happens in agriculture, by the way, that when they use Um, You know, pests, it turns out, they only attack unhealthy plants, which is really the same thing that happens in humans, right? right? Uh, Our bacteria come within to get rid of the unhealthy parts, not to kill the organism like they might 
like pests might to a plant, but the, the pests only go to the unhealthy plants. So when you use pesticides, which are like antibiotics, to kill all the insects, well then you have a fungal infestation because the plant is still unhealthy <laughs> and nature needs to, you know, recycle it. So now the mycelium detect that the insects are gone and then they, you know, end up flowering up into the plant and consuming the plant. Uh, and then, of course, then the farmer is sold fungicide, <laughs> um, right? So, you know, that's the, that's the cycle of nature and the same kind of thing is happening in our body. And we are starting to realize, but in the mainstream, it's a slow process, that all of these things um, are actually hurting our health. And that if we right. understand the, the integration of the different organisms in our body and how they work together and support that, that's how we can optimize health. And that's really what I mean when I talk about the terrain theory umbrella, you know, of health. Right. I've thought about this in terms of the fact that, I mean, not just like you bring up the agricultural metaphor, um, but it's the same is true in allopathic medicine where they have this eradication theory. And we saw it with the, the, the uh, coronavirus as well, where the goal seemed to be to eradicate coronavirus, like the lockdowns and the mask wearing and all of these uh, interventions uh, seemed to promote this concept that they could eradicate it or completely stop the spread. And just like the theory is that uh you know if you kill all the pests then then the then the plant will be healthy or if you kill all the the germs inside the body then the body will be healthy um and it's just it seems to me like this is a fundamental difference in the philosophies that one is is you know eradicate all of the all of the dirtiness that we see right <laughs> and then yeah, the other so it's one like live in a live in a sterile world yeah yeah, exactly. And and uh, and then this other one, which I think is more appropriate for germ theory, just like with sustainable agriculture, is that like actually we need to cultivate this symbiotic system, that there's this complex symbiotic system where these microorganisms actually function for our health. And what we need to do is create a balance uh, of the types of microorganisms that we have inside of our system, rather than thinking about eradicating these microorganisms altogether. You know, the whole um, really philosophy of the modern allopathic medicine is, is warfare, right. right? Every strategy is kill, kill, kill. Chemotherapy, kill cancer cells, right? Uh, autoimmune diseases, give chemotherapy, suppress the immune system right? Um, infections kill the microbe, right? It's all kill, kill, kill. The, what are people spraying everywhere, right? In China, they actually have crews spraying this all over the streets and the exteriors right. of buildings and such. Um, you know, these toxic chemicals to kill everything on every surface, right? Everything in the air. And that's not how nature works. I'm just saying, let's sit back and let's observe nature because nature is a, a self-healing system, right? If you go into an undisturbed jungle or forest or wetland ecosystem, right? Or pretty much any of these things, you'll see just amazing, amazing things, amazing beauty, amazing variety, amazing vitality. And you'll feel, you know, that energy. So if we just observe how those things work in nature, we can see that it's not about killing. Right? right, and it's not also not about invasion. It's about balance and cooperation, right? And if 
in the plant world, it's a little bit more vicious, and in and in the wild animal world, like there's there's not the same set of ethics as we have, being a more sophisticated species. But basically, what you have is that nature only consumes the weak, right? So the pests attack the unhealthy plants, the you know the baby animals, the juveniles that are born weak for whatever reason, they're the ones that the predators get first, right? Or under harsh environmental conditions, they don't have the resilience to survive. And that's how nature keeps itself healthy and renewing because all of those creatures that aren't successful, they, you know, get resorbed and then emerge anew in a stronger way. And we can, of course, we don't have to, as humans, we can make the decision that instead of you know, killing the weak, <laughs> we can we can take care of them and learn from them how to be more respectful, more caring, um, you know, to our neighbors and and members of our community, and then we can also help them optimize their abilities, like overcome their weakness as much as possible, and we can learn about being in a better balance in nature so that our offspring are born stronger. Right, and this is a way that we can improve the condition of humanity um, without causing any damage. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's so interesting to me when you get out of this military model, like you're talking about, and you start thinking about um, being a participant in a cyclical uh, environment uh, and seeking symbiosis with that environment rather than this uh, this attack method. You really end up in this completely di different place where you're thinking about health uh in an entirely different way and um you know certainly from what i've seen i think from what you've seen it's it's a more highly functional version of medicine than uh than the military style uh invasion and and killing off all the enemies uh style that we see so prominently in allopathic medicine it's a it's a big distinction to make um i wanted to kind of expand on this notion of the biome because now there is what people are calling the virome. And I wanted to get your opinion on this because it's my understanding that you actually believe that what people are calling viruses is something completely distinct uh, from a microorganism and would be more uh, accurately described as what you call an exosome. But modern science, I, and it's so... Um, if my history is a little bit off here, because I believe Dr. Stephen Lanka was the initial person that postulated that there was this thing called the virome in the 1980s. And I think that he's actually evolved his thinking to think more like you these days. But if you'll just cover this concept of the virome, uh, its relationship to the biome, uh, potentially, and whether or not you think that's even an accurate way uh, of describing uh, how the body works in terms of its healing capacity and its relationship with these microorganisms. Sure. Well, um, you know, it's some of these questions are really easy to answer because there there is no virome. This is uh -huh. a, simply a, a made up computer concept. And let me just review that there there's kind of three pillars of evidence for the existence of pathologic viruses or viruses alleged to cause disease because other things are also sometimes called viruses. So like Stefan Lanka earlier in his career, and this is what led him to his position, he actually discovered uh, a quote-unquote virus in sea algae. Mm. Called, it's called a, a giant virus. Um, but that was real. Like he actually purified it directly from, um, 
you know, from the, uh, the seaweed uh, cells, etc., and did all the normal things to show that it's a real thing. But, it, but he actually discovered it was helpful to the survival. <laughs> so not, it didn't cause disease. And then there's bacteriophages right. and, you know, those are viruses that uh, they were said originally to eat bacteria, but now the evidence seems to show that bacteria actually turn into them like spores okay. in very aversive uh, conditions. But those also, they've been purified directly from bacteria where they're said to live and shown to be a real thing. So I'm not talking about those. I'm talking just about the viruses that they say cause disease because those are the ones they haven't actually shown to exist. But they th put up three pillars of evidence. So one is that they say that when they put body fluids and tissues in a cell culture with toxic chemicals and the cell culture shows some damage, which they call cytopathic effects, they say that's, that's one evidence that the virus is in the biological sample. Then the second pillar is the pictures they show on an electron microscope. And that's when they're showing pictures of particles that um, there's no evidence that they come from anywhere but the cells in the culture. And when particles bud off cells like that, they're called exosomes, which is a pretty nonspecific term. It covers a lot of different things that aren't fully characterized, but those things have been shown to exist. But they have never found, so what they say these disease-causing viruses are is that they're particles found in nature, right? So they could be in the air, they could be in organisms, they're hosts, right? But they, they have to be in the air at some point in order to go between creatures if they spread that way, right? And that's what they're said to be. They're said to be particles in nature that get into organisms and then they can replicate or reproduce inside the, the host organism um, using some part of the host organism for reproduction purposes. And then by a result of their reproduction that they cause tissue damage and illness in the host. And they say this happens by when it reproduces inside of a cell that it makes the cell explode. And then all these new virus particles go out, do that to other cells and cause the tissue destruction like that. But never once have they ever shown that they were able to uh, demonstrate these so-called particles in nature, like in the air. Never, never, haven't even tried really. Right. Um, and they also never were able to demonstrate them directly from a sick person. So there's no proof that they exist. Now, with respect to the virome, that is based on the third pillar of evidence, which is the, quote, in silico genome. And that is basically what they do is they just take tissue or fluids from a sick person and assume that there's DNA in there from a virus. And then they put all of the sequences they find into a computer and have it spit out a, a made-up fantasy um, genome of that virus, but they call it the viral genome and take it seriously. And that's why they say that there are all these viruses in our own genome, uh, the human genome, and that's what they say the virome is. But basically, these sequences are just human sequences. They've been misinterpreted or perhaps, you know, fraudulently determined or called viral genomes.
but there's they've always been taken from human samples right and then so they're they have sequences from human samples they find bits of those sequences in the human genome and then they say it's a virus <laughs> it's right. it's a total fantasy and if you look at how these experiments are done you'll see they never ever had a viral particle and took genetic material from it to determine the sequence they only took it from a mixture of human genetic material and other microorganisms like bacteria and fungi and a computer made it up from those sequences and there's no provenance in other words like they spit out this genome it's made of over a million different little tiny pieces and they don't, they can't say where any one of those million pieces came from right that's the provenance right and but yet they say the thing is valid in the end and then they say they go back and find the same thing in human cells and say it's the it's viruses as part of human dna but it was human all along yeah, it seems to me like what's happening is we're butting up against the the limits of scientific knowledge, and and in this modern age, and I'd like you to speak to that. We're we're uh, running up against this concept that I, I like to call people like to call scientism, which pre presents this notion that science has proven at least certain foundational theories, uh, basically by an overwhelming consensus of experts and evidence that's been that's been put out there and that these things must be true. But in truth, uh, certainly at the cutting edge of science, there are things that science just doesn't know. And it seems to me like these tiny particles that are found inside of our body that are so small, um, it's just getting to a point where we really don't know. I mean, I think that was one of the things that I thought was interesting, even in the scientific papers, the peer reviewed papers that are, that are published about the virome, they're all like, they don't, they realize they don't know what this thing is doing, what it necessarily is. You even question the existence of the thing at all. Um, but I just think it's important for people to recognize that there are limits to what these people really understand. And certainly these very, very small particles, this is all just really theoretical. Um, it's not irrational at all to kind of look at the fact that, well, scientists just don't know what these things are. And maybe, you know, this other theory, this terrain theory is a little bit more effective at, at uh, dealing with the disease problem, given the fact that we don't know exactly what causes uh, all disease necessarily, or we can't, we can't at least pinpoint science hasn't been able to pinpoint the exact causation as you say that these particular tiny particles are actually the cause of the disease um yeah will you speak to that in in yeah, yeah absolutely in reference and, to know, this concept a, of scientism yeah go ahead. there's kind of a lot to unpack here and I, I wouldn't really say it's the limits of of scientific um ability or of technology because mm -hmm. we actually we can actually learn quite a lot through very simple experiments that we already is with outdated technology is all we need, right? I mean, to find viruses, you they could find particles this size in the 1940s, right? They found bacteriophages back then, so mm -hmm. it's not a limit of the technology. Now, okay. there are some major criticisms of the techniques of electron microscopy that we could talk about. Is it even valid at all? Mm -hmm. But 
it's not the limits of technology that's the issue. It's the limits of logic. It's that si what we're talking about here is not actually science. So the, you said, you know, a consensus. And this is what we're presented with through the media, right, as the public, that there's a group of scientists who got together and agreed that this is the, the way it goes. But that is anti-scientific. Right. Science <laughs> is dictated by nature, Right? Nature tells you what's true or not. Like you do an experiment and then you'll get the answer and nature will tell you. And if if that interpretation is not clear, then you didn't do the right experiment and it's not science. Right? But when they when they put um, when they say things and they say they're based on science, but they're actually not, that that's defined as pseudoscience. And you know, scientism is really related to that. But that's that's the essence of what we're talking about here. So what happens is a number of things. So one thing is that there are these assumptions that uh, scientists have that are true. And there was, you know, a quote about the Big Bang theory uh, from, you know, a theoretical physicist that said, you know, I can explain anything if you let me have one assumption. Right. And that's where the Big Bang, the Big Bang may be in an ancient scriptures, but it was adopted by the scientific uh, theoretical physicists community in the 20th century because it provided that one assumption that they needed and then they could explain everything else away. <laughs> but obviously that's an awfully big assumption. Right. But this happens, right? We talked about it in my medical career earlier. So if you're a scientist studying tuberculosis, you assume it's caused by the bacteria, mycobacterium tuberculosis. And you do experiments based on that assumption being true. And then what that means is, if that assumption is actually false, all your experiments, the results are meaningless. And this is essentially makes up almost all of the science that's done in industry and academia. And it's mostly academia, because in industry, they're developing products. They're not really doing you know, science to discover how nature works. So you have here that they're doing these experiments and like in biology, which I know the most about, essentially what has happened is that they have gone away from doing research in organisms, right? Because an organism is a complex system, but they're operating under this philosophy of reductionism that if you can take the smallest part of the organism um, and understand that, then you understand the whole organism. But that's not really how it works. The organism is a whole, and it, and it is more than um, just a function of the individual parts. But they do experiments just with individual molecules in the laboratory, the in vivo, uh, sorry, in vitro science, mm -hmm. right? And so, for example, with toxicity, a very simple thing, like you can actually do scientific experiments and show the causal relationship between a substance and, you know, poisoning the, um, an, an organism by simply giving different concentrations to the organism and having a control group. And then you can show a causality, right? If you give formaldehyde to, you know, mice, what happens? And this, this has been done back in the day. But I was looking into graphene toxicity. Now, graphene has only been invented you know, in this century. So there were no toxicity studies from the 1950s and 60s to look at. And what do they do? There was only one experiment out of 10 that actually gave graphene to experimental animals. 
all the other, and I'm not saying that that's ethical necessarily. I'm just talking about the scientific uh, value. So um, I don't mm -hmm. like buy any products that are tested on animals, for example. But to determine toxicity, you really, this is a, the only way we know how to do it accurately. But they don't do that anymore. What do they do is they have a cell culture and they put the toxin in the cell culture and then they look at like mark biomarkers. Not, they don't even look at the direct results on the cell culture. They just look at molecules and like that molecule explains what's going to happen when you put the substance in a whole organism. And they make assumptions about that. And that's not how you determine a causal relationship. The only thing you can determine from that is, uh, does graphene cause this molecule to be made? <laughs> but that's kind of meaningless. That's not a question, you know, you don't want to know how much of molecule A, B, or C is in your body. That's, that's meaningless. You want to know, <laughs> am I going to be healthy? You know, can I, can I take this substance and, and not drop dead? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. And this is how almost all biology is done. It's done in, you know, out of context in a reductionist model, looking only at covariates, never looking at the context of the environment of the whole organism, um, never taking into account anything other than material influences also. So it, it, that, set of limitations is what prevents, is, prevents knowledge from being advanced. And these consensus opinions like climate change, global warming, germ theory, these things are, are not true, right? So, and in fact, I think it's a pretty strong clue. If anyone organizes a consensus opinion among scientists, you know they're coerced or paid off because science, a consensus is not a scientific process. And so that should tell you right away, whatever they say there's a consensus about, it's false. All right. And uh, so, you know, this is fascinating. I mean, what we're really talking about here is making a paradigm shift from this one, the military model that we've discussed that um, doesn't take into account the symbiosis that's happening in terms of the microbiome inside the body or these microorganisms working inside the body. And then secondly, uh, this tendency towards reductionism that doesn't take the entire system into account. It actually is just looking at such tiny amounts, uh, tiny processes that they don't really look at the big picture enough to dis to discern um, whether these causal relationships are really going to make somebody healthy or, or, or unhealthy or whatever in the big picture of things. Exactly. Exactly. You know, in, in psychiatry, right, depression, they say, right, it's caused by some problem with this neurotransmitter, serotonin in this like specific part of your brain. And then someone comes in and they're depressed, but their wife just cheated on them. Now, how right. does that relate to your serotonin receptor? You know, it just doesn't account right. for that. But, but that's, you know, that's what happens in real life. That's why people get down is because usually, you know, something bad happens. Yeah, there's an energetic component. There's an emotional energetic component that causes stress that has all kinds of effects on the body. And they're really not even looking at that unless they can pinpoint a materialistic reason for all of this, which gets super complicated. Uh, and becomes impossible to really define causality on that level, and whether it has an impact on the on the macro organism uh, is a totally different 
different scenarios. So they kind of get lost in the weeds here. Why I want to, I only have a, you know, 10, 15 more minutes left with you. And so I wanted to kind of get your response to the fact that, you, you know, a lot of people just have such a difficult time thinking that the whole system has gotten itself so off base. You know, how can every doctor or uh, every journalist or every person that's involved in the, in the corporate system or the people that are involved at the FDA and the CDC, how are they so off and what's going on uh, with the system that it could have built this, I mean, billions of dollars industry on top of such a weak foundation without ever revisiting, um, even, even as the system itself really doesn't show very positive benefits, uh, it continues and continues to roll on. Is this a, a sort of a fundamental corruption in the system? Or, I mean, what do you think is the cause for for the overwhelming push for germ theory and the attacks that you and others have, have endured as a result of simply positing that like, hey, you know, maybe drinking clean water is actually better for people than taking a bunch of pills? <laughs> so, you know, I know that this may even be more difficult to believe, but uh, all of this is backed up by you know very solid evidence in the historical record, etc. But there's actually been a calculated, coordinated effort to bring about all of these aspects of the current healthcare system that's been going on for over a hundred years, and it starts you know with the initial work that led to the Flexner report in the early 20th century. And this was, you know, commissioned by the Rockefellers and other robber barons at the time. And they basically developed a, you know, they, they worked within the American Medical Association initially. Um, and then they commissioned this Flexner report, which was through the Rockefeller Foundation. And they developed a smear campaign against other forms of medicine outside of the allopathic model, because at that time, most medical schools in the United States were naturopathic and homeopathic, um, and chiropractic schools were gaining popularity. And then there were a small number of allopathic doctors, but they weren't too well favored because in the years leading up to that, they were giving people arsenic and mercury-based drugs you know, to treat things like teething and in infants and such. Right. And, uh, you know, it just <laughs> it wasn't working out. Giving out poison. They still so, love the mercury and the aluminum. And like yeah. you mentioned, the graphene oxide. It's like, why? These, we know these things are toxic. Why are you putting yeah. them in stuff? Why are you exactly. injecting these into people? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they started calling doctors, you know, who are practicing in these ways, quacks, and came up with a way to certify, you know, drugs as non-quackery, that putting their, you know, like good housekeeping seal on it. And this um, helped prop up the burgeoning pharmaceutical industry, which was basically started manufacturing things based on petroleum products or the petroleum industry. And the Flexner Report essentially told the United States government that the medical schools should only be allopathic and all the other schools are not up to snuff. And they kind of made this accreditation system that only accredited allopathic schools. So within a few years, suddenly the whole medical education in the United States changed and it now became predominantly allopathic schools, and they all had high tuition and essentially 
poor people were cut out of becoming health practitioners at that level. And then they, the same robber barons that financed this and changed over the system, they essentially donated, became you know, benefactors to all the medical schools. And in exchange for that, they put their own people on the, bo the executive boards of all these schools so that they could influence the curriculum. And they, of course, were either owners or related to the owners of the pharmaceutical companies, which have, you know, just expanded and have a real stranghold. I mean, they're a major portion of our GDP, you know, at this point in time. And this um, model, the allopathic model, or, you know, some people say it's cut, burn, poison. Uh, I actually did a film about this called Hippocratic Hypocrisy that you can find on my website uh, and watch it for free um, to learn more. But it's based on the germ warfare and the warfare model in general. And this is what leads to, you know, uh, you needing pharmaceuticals or surgery, like you can never address your health yourself. And the system only addresses disease, not health, right? They never talk to you about how to be healthy. It's always, how do you manage your disease? Never cure. That's a dirty word, right? Because you have to maintain your dependency on the system. And it's it's grown and expanded in many, many ways. And part of that is because of the data communications technology revolution, uh, which expanded the ability to do marketing through social media, through uh, electronic journals, which expanded health journals uh, influence way out. Um, of course, the technology of uh, molecular biology has um, led to all kinds of explosion of other toxic therapeutics. You know, and the data communications technology has infiltrated the health records. So now we have a situation, right, where uh, we're one step away from AI making all the decisions and they're not even being hardly any doctors anymore because doctors now are stuck with clinical practice guidelines that come up on their computer screen. They can't do anything to get around. Yeah. And if they, you know, don't follow them more than a few times here and there, they're going to get called into their hospital administrator's office and, you know, right. put in line. So, you know, it's basically, you know, adopted this whole business model and it's so influential in its marketing that even though the same doctors publish studies showing how at least the third leading cause of death is this medical treatment itself, you know, it's not in the common awareness. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. um, even though the research was partly done at Johns Hopkins, like the you know one of the top medical schools, it's right. still you know it's not just not reported on. It was actually probably one of the biggest revelations that I had from the whole COVID response was because people would say, "Well, I trust my doctor." You know, all the doctors are saying this. I trust my doctor, but when I looked into it, I discovered that the individual doctors really don't have a choice. It's it's very it's a very hierarchical system down to the point where, you know, Dr. Fauci says this is what needs to happen. And the American Medical Association says this is what has to happen because Dr. Fauci said, and then the insurance companies say, well, the American Medical Association said, this is, you know, this is your treatment protocol. This is what you have to do, or we're not going to pay for it. And then the hospitals, right? And then they're telling the doctors. And so the doctors have to follow the treatment protocols from up on yeah. high. There's no well, individual there's relationship or room for interpretation. If you work as a private practice physician, which most physicians do, you automatically have a conflict of interest because you're getting paid by an insurance company 
And then you have a patient who's not paying you. Yeah. So you actually work for the insurance company, and then that puts you in conflict with the patient's best interest because the insurance company is trying to tell you to do certain things to save money or to benefit them in some way that may go against, and it, it always does go against the patient's best interest. But So I was aware of these kinds of issues even before I looked into germ theory, and I practiced in such a sheltered way because I didn't work with insurance. I worked for a private foundation that was publicly funded. So I wasn't subjected to the state regulation because it was a private, but the money came in, right? And I didn't have to worry about generating revenue. So I was essentially very free to do appropriate clinical practice. But what happened? The COVID regulations came in and I got fired, right? Because I wouldn't right. put on the mask. And that's, so that's what everyone's facing. Now, I say you should um, embrace that. It's a blessing <laughs> to get out of this toxic, evil medical system. And I'll assure you that, that you will be able to make a living doing healthcare in, the, in a much better way where your clients actually get better. And I, right. I now have an apprenticeship retraining allopathic physicians in this model. And oh, I have cool. an amazing colleague uh, who's about almost halfway through this program now, Dr. Grayson Dart. And uh, he's a family medicine doctor, you know, just out of training who kind of had a lot of uh, waking up moments during the last two years. And he, he's thriving. Excellent. You know, so, so for people who are afraid to jump ship, there's a real opportunity now because of the nature of the surveillance state integrating into medicine, a lot of people are really, you know, looking for alternatives and they, they want out of that system. And so this is a great opportunity to show them that they can actually be much healthier and uh, for a much, much lower cost. <laughs> you well, know, the, when I work with people, it's a, for a, a time limited basis and then they're healthy and they don't need to spend any more money on healthcare. Right. I mean, that is what's so amazing about the whole thing. I mean, on this show, I talk a lot about uh, developing uh, parallel systems, exactly like you're talking about. I mean, we just got to leave this old system behind. It's not working. There's uh, much cheaper alternatives. Um, this terrain theory model, once you start looking into it, uh, there's a lot of uh, inexpensive alternatives that actually cure your disease. <laughs> and they don't, it doesn't have to cost tens of thousands of dollars like, uh, like the current system. So I know you're a busy guy and you have something coming up. We have just a few minutes left and I did want to give you an opportunity. Uh, I know I initially wanted to have you on to help promote uh, the movie Terrain. Uh, and so uh, I also wanted to give you a chance to explain, especially at the end of that movie, Terrain, you talk a lot about the importance of clean water. And that seems to me, uh, from my own personal research, step one, if you care uh, about the health of your body, then drinking healthy water, good clean water uh, is probably the place to start. So if you just want to take the last couple of minutes here and explain some of the things that you've been doing, uh, a little bit about this, your position in terms of understanding the kind of water that people should drink, some things that people could do to radically improve their health, just kind of right off the bat, and, and then some of the other things you're doing uh, to help promote some of these ideas out there in the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, people should definitely still check out uh, terrainthefilm.com because, and you can actually host a screening in your area too. And this film has been very well received so far. It was uh, released initially in February, uh, but people are still watching it um, all the time. It's on a couple of other platforms and will be on more, but it really helps you debunk situation that we experienced the last couple of years and it also introduces this terrain model and we do focus a little bit on water which is something that I actually have started a series of terrain workshops based on the film to teach um, practical information about terrain-based healing and health and the first one is called the way of water workshop and it's on that website as well Uh, you can still get access to that and the reason is because, you know, one is since I've been working with, you know, natural healing type clients, I realized that virtually every single one of them is chronically dehydrated. And that this is, you know, basically we have come to um, confuse the signs of thirst with the signs of dehydration and we don't drink until we're dehydrated. And then we right. stay dehydrated because we don't keep drinking. Um, or we drink the wrong things, or we eat the wrong things. There's a lot of reasons. But, you know, so I realized this is a big problem. And then I heard about the new water science, and there's some incredible um, science in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, depending on which topic, that tells us that everything we think we know about water is totally wrong, that it is not this passive you know, substance in the background that it actually takes on all these amazing active roles and even can generate electricity and transform energy and all these amazing things. And our body is already, you know, commonly we know that our body is like two thirds or about 70% water by weight. But if you look at it as the per molecule, 99 out of every 100 molecules in our body is water. So we're made essentially of water, but obviously we're very different than a water balloon, right? Which is also made of almost all water um, because the water in our body is is in a very different form, a form that we don't see normally in nature, um, right? It's not ice. It's not liquid water um, predominantly, and it's not steam, right? It's this fourth phase of water. And so... This has really helped me gain insight um, and develop a hypothesis about the real cause of of most disease, and it's essentially related to the water being overly contaminated, which can happen from too little water or too many contaminants. And that disrupts all of the normal functioning of the body, uh, wherever it occurs in the body. And... So through this knowledge, and then I had this experience of doing an extended water fast for 26 days, I basically have put together, you know, um, a curriculum to understand, you know, how to tell how dehydrated you are and how you can rehydrate yourself and integrate hydration back into your lifestyle so that you can optimize and maintain your health. And you can't really do any type of healing protocol effectively unless you're appropriately hydrated. Everything will be compromised about your body if you're not, you know, well hydrated with the right type of pure water, etc. So, you know, so I'm putting this out as one of my main 
um, you know, areas of teaching because it's such a valuable um, aspect. And in fact, um, in a, a few weeks in September, um, we're just about to launch the pre-sale for this. I'm going to be offering a comprehensive uh, course called the Alchemical Detox. And of course, it's going to include ex extensive education on water and the protocols, but it's going to teach you whether you're you know, an average man or woman, or even if you're a healthcare professional, even in natural healing, you're going to learn pretty much everything important to know about detoxification and alchemical transformation of your health. And after this course, you'll be able to pretty much customize a healing protocol for you to address any situation in your life, whether you're just, you know, kind of getting on in the years and your body's kind of not functioning as well as you'd like it, um, whether you have been too, doing too much partying or binging on junk food the last two years and you need to do something to get yourself back, or even if you're suffering from, you know, serious life-threatening health conditions, you'll have the tools and the knowledge to be able to address those, even without any additional outside help. Um, so I'm, you know, really excited and I've been working on this for, for a year because really like with respect to what you're talking about of having a parallel infrastructure, um, you know, based on ethical values, natural law, nature, um, this is really my goal. And so I'm trying to be able to impart this information to people that they can take charge of their own healing right? That they don't need. And, and, you mm -hmm. know, even what you said before about finding a substance in nature that can lead to a cure, it's not the substance that's curing you, right? Substances don't actually do direct action on your body. Your body responds to the substance and then your body does the action. So all the healing actually comes from within you, from your own body. What you're doing with the substance is you're providing the right terrain for the body to do the right healing function. Right. Right. And that's what this is really all about is what I'm teaching you is how does your body do those functions and how do you alter your terrain using only natural um, elements like water, like some plants and foods and things like that to adjust the terrain in your body to allow that healing to come about. And that's, that's really my main mission uh, in everything I do. Well, it sounds like a plan, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks for coming on the show. Do you want to give people the website they should go to to find out all of this stuff? Absolutely. So you can go to um, andrewkaufmanmd.com is my main website and portal to everything else. And please sign up for my newsletter so you can be informed about all of these events coming up because I have, you know, almost every month I have some form of uh, webinar or other type of uh, educational offering. Um, TerrainTheFilm.com uh, will get you access to the movie and to my Way of Water workshop. And um, our new website is TheAlchemicalDetox.com for the uh, detox course. And that is um, not completely open yet, but will be next week sometime. All right. Sounds good. I'll make sure I put all of that in the show notes. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, we just barely, I feel like, scratched the surface on some of this. And I definitely recommend 
uh, that people go and check out Hippocratic Hypocrisy as well as Terrain the Film, where they can get a more uh, in-depth understanding of, of these you. topics and, of conversation. And Doug, you can, uh, you can get that directly at andrewkaufmanmd.com slash hippo, H-I-P-P-O. Sounds uh, good. All right. Thanks again. I'll just let people know that you've been listening to The Shift and I'm your host, Doug McKenty. You can find all of my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Sign up for my newsletter there. Uh, and uh, I also have a Substack called uh, uh, The Populist Papers, so you can find my written work there. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this one. Really appreciate Dr. Kaufman for coming on. And thank you so much for your work. I know it hasn't always been easy. You get a lot of flack for, for running against the current. So... Uh, appreciate that you're standing up for these ideas. They make a lot of sense to me and I think probably a lot of the listeners out there as well. So thanks again for coming on. My pleasure. You bet. Have a good one. All right. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, there you go. Uh, my interview with Dr. Andrew Kaufman. That was uh, several months in the coming, actually. I think I tried starting to book him shortly after Terrain the film came out. Uh, and it took us uh, probably a little over six months to to make it happen, but it finally did. I was really glad to talk to him. I had talked to him once before in a show I used to do called The Roundtable Discussions, which was actually uh, a conversation that I had with him and Dr. Judy Mikevitz at the same time. Uh, I hadn't realized at the time the interview I was actually sitting on because Kaufman and Mikevitz, I think, ultimately have this difference of opinion about the uh, whether or not the virome exists. I mention it in this interview a little bit. There is a, a dispute uh, among the current uh, scientific consensus, if you will, uh, at least in the alternative universe, as to whether or not viruses exist at all, whether or not that there is this virome that has a function. Um, and it's sort of typified between uh, this difference of opinion between Mikevitz and Kaufman. Uh, he did tell me prior to uh, this conversation we just had that he was going to get back together and kind of have that showdown with her. So if, uh, if that comes out, I'll try to post it up on social media. It'll be a, an interesting conversation for sure, and it'll help to hash out uh, some of the, the more refined scientific arguments for uh, whether even virus particles exist, whether they don't, some of the disagreements that people have around it. All told, uh, I was really interested when, during COVID, this whole uh, terrain theory argument kind of popped up, and I started looking into it. Um, as some of you may know, I've interviewed Dr. Tom Cowan, and I interviewed the producer, Marcy Cravat, uh, when, when Terrain the film came out uh, six months ago. And uh, so I, I kind of took a deep dive into this, uh, and it is astonishing to me how much the actual modern science uh, has not, I think, as Dr. Kaufman brought up, uh, adequately isolated virus, uh, adequately really showed disease causality, that these viruses do in fact result in disease. These things just haven't, the foundations of this whole thing, was, which so many of us um, just think of as quote-unquote settled science, right? Uh, it's not settled science. The foundations are, are kind of weak. I think anybody that looks into it uh, can can point that out, make a decision for themselves, but not not quite as solid as, as we've been led to believe in mass for sure. And then when I looked up the uh, all of the science that's happening around the virome, we brought up during that co our conversation uh, about Dr. Stephen Lanka, who discovered the virome uh, in a plant uh, in the 80s. And that really threw a monkey wrench at the whole concept that viruses invaded from outside and then caused disease because Stephen, Stephen Lanka 
found all these viruses inside inside these plants and said, well, maybe there's this virome. And in fact, if you just look it up, Google it, virome uh, peer-reviewed studies, you'll realize that on the cutting edge of virology these days, scientists are really trying to study what all these particles are and what they're doing in the body and what function they may serve. And uh, so even mainstream modern science, if you look into it, not mainstream modern science that you hear about on the corporate news, uh, but in all the peer-reviewed literature, you'll find that scientists clearly understand now that there's uh, there's a way more complex system on that micro level at that virus level than they initially assumed and they just don't know what it does. Um, so one of the interesting things is you do this kind of research into science and of course you find out that there's a, an upper limit to it where people just have to say no matter how educated or scientific you are uh, we just don't know, right? <laughs> and so again even though uh, we've been told that this germ theory is just settled science and, and everybody knows that it's true. Uh, actually, it's very easy to go into the scientific literature and discover that there's huge debates going on right now about what this virome is. Uh, Dr. Kaufman doesn't believe it even exists, that these are exosomes or other particles. Um, it's a debate that's continuing to go on. Um, but this terrain theory idea, even though it has been so attacked, I mean, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Kaufman, I mean, I've had two strikes on YouTube. This interview probably is not going to go up on YouTube. And all of them, the, the two previous strikes that I've had were discussions about terrain theory. It's a verboten subject. It is considered total disinformation. Uh, it's one of the subjects, maybe the most censored subject uh, on the internet over the, over the COVID debate. So this is something that... Uh, the modern medical marketing campaigners don't want us to think about or know about or question or understand. And then the flip side of this, that the science actually is questioning some of the fundamental ideas uh, about the way that uh, scientists have claimed that the, uh, the germ theory has operated over the last 150 years. Uh, the, the, on the flip side of this is the common sense notion that clean water is good for you. No kidding. <laughs> I mean, terrain theory is theoretically so controversial, and yet common sense simply dictates that the healthier you eat, the healthier you're going to be. Why is that? Because the terrain has a lot of influence on health. I mean, anybody knows that. You don't have to be an expert to understand that. So having Dr. Kaufman come on, kind of have this complex scientific discussion about, about germ theory, and then the conclusion is, you know, we all really need to drink more clean water. Uh, think about the difference that that would make, right? <laughs> and uh, I think it's just something that we all know, right? There is something to the terrain theory. So again, uh, considering the common sense foundations of this terrain theory, isn't it so strange that it's just the most, uh, again, the most censored uh, probably conversation to have on the internet. Um, so let's ask ourselves why. Maybe maybe there's just not as much profit in clean water as there is in chemotherapy or vaccines or all of these other uh, tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars a year industry that Big Pharma takes advantage of right now. They don't want you to know the secret about clean water uh, because they wouldn't be making those billions. Anyway, uh, I think it's a really important topic, and I was glad to finally get a chance to talk to Dr. Kaufman about it. Uh, I do just want to kind of wrap up and say I am sorry I have not been producing weekly as I uh, typically try to do, but I have gotten a job, as some of you may have heard, uh, as the social media manager for ThriveOn.com, and it's actually paying the bills. So uh, it's been a great uh 
um, a great transition. I'm really enjoying the work. Uh, the Thrive people uh, of all the different uh, production houses out there probably align with my own belief system uh, the closest. And so it's great to be able to work with a group of people that think a lot like I do. Um, long story short, uh, I will be producing less, less shift episodes. Uh, I may not do the intro and outro. There will be a bunch of kind of changes coming up. And I'm thinking more that I want to prioritize just doing this weekly call-in show and starting to have just conversations with people. Anyone can call in. Uh, completely an open lines show. I used to do it in Northern California at KZYX for many years. And uh, I kind of consider it a service to the democratic process to have a place where people can come and say what's on their mind. And we'll just build the conversation around that. So stay tuned for that. I will keep these interviews going when I have the time, uh, hopefully a couple a month. Um, but again, it's just going to be kind of things are changing. I'm going to remove the subscription part of it and start giving all my stuff away for free. So for you subscribers, uh, stay tuned for uh, those changes. I'll send uh, the newsletter out. And if you want to keep in touch, yeah, please sign up www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, and you can sign up for my newsletter and I'll keep you uh, appraised of the changes that are happening with this program and what's going on with Thrive. Uh, and also don't forget if you want to find out more about Dr. Kaufman's work, uh, then you can go to www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, andrewkaufmanmd.com and uh, you can sign up for the Way of Water workshop. He's got a lot of other stuff going on that you should check out and you can check out the two documentaries there as well. So thanks everybody for listening. Uh, I'm actually excited about the changes that are going to be happening around here so I hope you are too. Uh, you can join me, Doug McKenty on Facebook, at McKenty on Twitter. I'll probably start doing a lot more social media work now that I'm getting a little better at it so uh, maybe you'll hear about me uh, more and more out there in virtual land. So uh, figure out a way to keep in touch uh, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Take care. <laughs>